0: think that Jupiter and Saturn kind of may have crossed paths in the past and that was responsible for disrupting the planetesimal belt which delivered water to Earth. It's got the largest distance range for detecting, so we can detect things that are thousands of light years away. The worrying thing is it's it's something that we really need for medical instruments, don't buy helium for kids party balloons, right, there's a finite amount of it on the planet.
1: You're listening to Widdishin's podcast, where we take the ultimate sci-fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers, and experts. This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers Wordery and the Book Depository, and the book whose theme we're reflecting on this week is Dying of the Light by the man who authored Game of Thrones george rr Munn. it's a tale set on the planet warlorn a world which is dying it's a rogue exoplanet whose erratic course is taking it irreversibly away from its neighboring stars into a region of cold and dark space where no one will survive but this is a story of love and honor on the edges of the universe it's about exoplanets choices and culture there's duelling a mad flight through the wilderness spaceships and anti-gravity the link to dying of the light can be found in the show notes My name is Amy Rose, and as a host of Wittishan's podcast, I bring to you an episode on exoplanets with Dr. Cassandra Hall. Dr. Hall is a Winton Exoplanet Fellow, and she works in the Theoretical Astrophysics Group in the School of Physics and Astronomy. She did her PhD in Theoretical Astrophysics at the Royal Observatory at the University of Edinburgh. She specializes in the study of exoplanet formation and is particularly interested in protoplanetary accretion disks, which are the birth sites of exoplanets. And she uses some of the world's most powerful supercomputers to predict and explain observations by the world's most powerful telescopes. Cass, thank you so much for coming on Widdershins and talking to me about exoplanets and everything that you do in the space. Pardon the pun. <laughs> I just wanna I just wanna know to start off with, how did you get into your field of study what is your field not even of study your profession you're an expert so did you start off as a little girl just thinking space was amazing
0: kind of a mix of both I mean I've I was always fascinated with space as a child um, I remember you know my dad used to take me out into the street to point out the stars and um, we stayed up to watch comets this sort of thing and I was always fascinated I had loads of books about space I used to watch documentaries about space um, but growing up, I, I thought maybe I would do something different. I thought maybe I would be a pilot, actually, for a while. I, I thought about going into the armed forces. But then when I went to university, you know, I, I was really, really passionate about studying astrophysics. And I just realized I loved it far too much to kind of ever do anything else. So that's kind of how it happened.
1: And so what are you doing at the moment? Where, where are you in the world? And what are you passionate about? So
0: for once, i am actually sat at my desk in Leicester. Often I'm, I'm traveling to all these incredible places around the world. You know, I've been been out. the atacama desert in chile to go observing and i've done all sorts of incredibly exciting things Um, but at the moment I'm working on uh, a bunch of different things so I'm really interested in using computer simulations to kind of understand observations that we're seeing about some systems that are forming planets so at the moment I'm doing some stuff where I'm simulating a molecule called carbon monoxide because we are able to measure things like speed and kind of a little bit of uh, rotation information and things like that as well so I'm doing some pretty cool simulations about these sorts of things.
1: And why do you do these simulations exactly I mean are you trying to figure out what what exoplanets are like, what to expect or how to find them?
0: Yeah, good question. So for there, there are lots of different reasons why you do these simulations. I guess for me, I am most interested in how exoplanets form and sort of like why they're able to form. So this is kind of one of the things that we, we don't necessarily understand very well at the moment. So simulations really help us to understand what's going on even if we can only simulate a very small amount of the the time over which it takes these things to form it can just help us understand the physics of, of what's going on
1: can you just explain what exactly an exoplanet is and and what do the simulations show in relation to these exoplanets what, what's the outcome
0: sure so there's for a start there's so many different types of simulations you can do things where you kind of just look at statistics so you, you're generating these things to kind of look at like thousands of these objects or you can do like really detailed three-dimensional simulations where you look at gas and dust and all this sort of stuff so it, it really depends on what you want to do there's loads of things you can look at but an exoplanet so i think first you need to define a planet so it has to be in something that is called hydrostatic equilibrium and that basically just means that gravity and pressure force is balanced, so this thing is kind of round and that's the sort of it makes a difference between what we class as a planet and a dwarf planet and it also has to have cleared orbit of uh, objects of similar size. So it's kind of the biggest thing. You know, it's the biggest kid in the playground, right? It's the biggest thing in its orbit. Um, so that's kind of what a planet is. So now an exoplanet is a planet that is a planet outside the solar system, and it can be either around another star or it can be a free floating planet, which I really like. I think they're really cool. We basically think of them as rogue planets that's just floating through space on its own. And they've mm-hmm. either been uh, ejected from their original system. So another star may have interrupted the orbit and gravitationally unbound it. Or another option is that it was never formed around another star in the first place.
1: Okay, so I'm just going to go back. You mentioned, and this gave me the heebie-jeebies, and it's not in my list of questions, but you mentioned that a star could throw one of these planets out of orbit. Is that something that could happen to Earth if if a star wanders in randomly and pushes us out?
0: I guess technically speaking, maybe it is something that could happen to Earth, but this would be on, on timescales of, you know, millions and millions, if not billions of years. We kind of, we kind of understand that our our own solar neighborhoods, so like our our nearby stars, are kind of pretty well behaved, and they're not really wandering towards us. But any system of more than two stars is inherently something that is called like chaotic, basically, like there's no direct analytical solution, which means that you have to simulate these things. So I guess there is a chance that you know, millions, billions of years in the future, we could wander into a star's orbit that would that would disrupt our own planet's orbits and become unstable.
1: Okay, so so back to exoplanets. I wanna know how is an exoplanet livable? What what sort of criteria does it does it need to tick? What boxes?
0: So there's something called that I find really interesting, it's something called rare earth hypothesis.
1: Hmm. And
0: it argues that the origin of life and the evolution of biologically complex species such as ourselves rests on this improbable series of events. So we are in the right location in the right galaxy, close enough to the center for what we call metals, which just for astronomers means anything that's not hydrogen or helium, which we need as life. We're far enough away from the center of the galaxy so that we don't experience gamma radiation from black holes. We're also far enough away from other stars that planets don't get chucked out, as we've just discussed. We're also the right distance from the right star. So our star is pretty cool. It's pretty chill. It doesn't blow out loads of coronae uh, and blasting away any nascent atmosphere that we may have when life needs atmosphere Mm. to to protect it, to breathe, to function. We also exist in something called the habitable zone. And that really just means the liquid water zone. And we're pretty sure that all of life, life certainly as we know it, needs liquid water. Our solar system is also really special because it has the right arrangement of planets. So for example, we think that Jupiter and Saturn kind of may have crossed paths in the past, and that was responsible for disrupting the planetesimal belt, which delivered water to Earth. Would this need to be the case in another Earth-like planet? Is is that the only way you can get water, or is there other ways that you can get water? That's not clear. Also, we're really special in that we have a very large moon. It protects us from asteroids, because basically, in terms of astronomical scales, the moon, of course, it's not the same mass as the Earth, but it's not wildly different as far as a lot of moons are concerned. They generally tend to be much smaller. And what this means is that if an asteroid gets chucked into our system, our moon kind of defends us against it and it will throw it out again. There's a bunch of different reasons. I guess another thing I haven't discussed is atmosphere. So the atmosphere, I think, is arguably the most important thing. So when a planet forms, it has something called a primary atmosphere. And that's just all the gas that it formed would the So it would have been mostly hydrogen, and helium. But then you have something called a secondary atmosphere. So when it's undergoing all of the rock formation and so on, you basically get volcanic outgassing. So it would be very heavy. things like uh, methane but then finally you have a tertiary atmosphere which is altered by life so you have large amounts of oxygen which is produced as a byproduct for photosynthesis so the fact that we have our atmosphere the way it is at all is basically because life you know plant life already existed before we got to intelligent life
1: our atmosphere as you said it's very important and the first stage when um, you mentioned when a when a planet forms there's the first atmosphere is there any other planets at the moment who have that first atmosphere forming or that look like they're starting this journey to becoming a fully fledged livable planet
0: certainly there are planets that have you know what what we would think of being atmosphere because you know we've been able to detect i think so we we have been able to detect helium which is a gas in an exoplanet that is the size of neptune which certainly shows that that is kind of the primary atmosphere i mm-hmm. think then making the leap to to life of course is uh, difficult right, because we have no other example of any life mm. in the universe apart from us. Are we
1: running out of helium on Earth? I don't know. I heard somewhere that helium is...
0: Yeah, there is a finite amount of helium on the planet. Mm. And the worrying thing is it's, it's something that we really need for medical instruments like MRI machines, for example. Don't buy helium for kids' party balloons, right? There's a finite amount of it on the planet. We should be saving it.
1: <laughs> I don't understand why. And considering no. this this exoplanet, Uh, has helium on it, something that we need, how easy would it be? I mean, let's say that we could get 80% speed of light and we could get Mm -hmm. somewhere. Like, would it be possible? Like, can you imagine taking helium from this exoplanet and bringing it back to Earth?
0: Well, I I mean, possible, yes. Probable, no. I I would hazard a guess that it was going to be about, I don't know, maybe like 300 light years away. So we would be able to bring it back you know 400 years or so if you were able oh, to do God. you know some sort of light speed and i think we only have enough helium left on earth for another i think it's like another hundred years or so so it's really not very much that we have so we need to be saving it for medicine right not not party balloons
1: okay well i really need uh technology to speed up so we can get to that exoplanet <laughs> and get some helium that's where i'm putting my money whoever invents that is, is gonna be on a goal <laughs> but okay moving along is there any there's i've I've actually got um there's a few things that i want to talk to you about but are there any exoplanets that look promising to not to have life on them already Mm. but to have the capacity to have life on them if we were to go there if that was possible
0: so could we could we yes (laughs) probably we could Will we? Probably no. You know, the the engineering challenges alone are are, are kind of crazy. But as to to whether or not these things would be favourable for life, I just think because we can't tell at the moment, you know, we, we are able to understand a little bit of what some of the atmosphere of these things looks like so we can detect things like helium, for example. But I think we shouldn't bother even trying unless we were able to detect something like, for example, chlorophyll. So there's something called the chlorophyll red edge. So when you when you take a measurement of some light, and you plot um, the intensity of this light as a function of the wavelength of the light, you there's this feature that's called the chlorophyll red edge, and you can measure it from space on Earth. I think in in over regions like the Amazon, and if we were able to detect a feature like that on another exoplanet, for example, you know chlorophyll changes the atmosphere right there's there's things like ozone is is very interesting which is basically the the tertiary oxygen molecule because something think uh, it's associated very rapidly, so some interesting process has to be going on to replenish it. So we would think maybe this is a strong indicator of photosynthesis. However, you know, it can be produced by non-biological means. So I think you would have to look for a biological signature like this chlorophyll red edge before you spent all that time, money and effort going off to see if there was life on another exoplanet.
1: You might have that sneaky suspicion that we've cut a fair bit out of this episode. And your intuition is on point, but that's because we can't fit everything in. And you also might have a sneaky suspicion that we've done other interviews that are a little bit crazier. So if you want access to all the uncut episodes and the interviews that we decided to make private, head to www.wittishinspodcast.com forward slash members only, and you might just find your tribe. Okay, I'll let you get back to the episode now. I do hope that you know I might be able to maybe when I'm 100 or something I might be able to jump in some spaceship and go check out what an exoplanet might look like.
0: Yeah, that would be amazing I think. I think there are I think there are many scientists who would love to do that and if they if they say if they say that they wouldn't love to do that they're just a bit embarrassed to say it I think. So <laughs> so I'm I'm calling
1: it a liar liar pants on fire right yeah okay so you're when it comes to exoplanets you're an expert and you're this is your life this is what you do what is it what's the reason for it I mean you're continually researching is do you have like a bucket of gold at the end of your rainbow? Is it something that you hope to achieve like by the end of your career? My
0: my scientifically polished answer would be that I, I'm trying to kind of build this bridge between observation and theory so so trying to really use computational simulations uh, and theoretical knowledge to kind of interpret like these amazing observations that we've been able to make of of systems that are currently forming planets you know we can we can observe systems that are that are giving birth to planets now there's there's a system called hl Tau, for example it's only about a hundred thousand years old by by comparison our own solar system is four billion years old And and Mm -hmm. we're literally watching these planets form and it's, but it's hard to understand the conditions of their formation. The non-scientifically polished answer I would give would be basically all of research is kind of like, you know, if you ever play a video game, but you skip the tutorial and you just kind of run around (laughs) and you don't really know what you're doing, but you'll find it out cool (laughs) stuff as you go. That's that's, that's what (laughs) science is really like. right? (laughs) So so I'm thinking right, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this thing and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to get a really good answer at the end of it. And then about halfway through, I'm like, ooh, shiny result that I wasn't expecting. La, 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 la. I'm going to go and chase that for <laughs> a while. You know, That's kind of how science proceeds. And uh, yeah, anybody who tells you otherwise isn't telling you the truth. <laughs> it
1: sounds actually super, super fun when the analogy of the video game is in there. That's actually so good. <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> Because I know there's there's new discoveries every single day and I can imagine these scientists. So Cass, can you tell me a little bit about how you go about detecting these exoplanets? What's the science behind it?
0: Sure. So I'm going to talk about five methods that have kind of either detected the most or they are the newest or the most exciting. But there are actually more. I think there's probably nine or ten ways that we've detected planets. So, So the first is radial velocity. It's also known as Doppler spectroscopy. And as a planet moves around the star, the star moves around the center of mass of the whole system, as does the planet. Um, But this means that the star wobbles slightly rather than spinning on the spot. And we can detect this because the star has something called a color spectrum. And that means that as the star moves towards us, this becomes blue shifted, it appears to have a shorter wavelength. And as it moves away, it becomes red shifted, and it appears to have a longer wavelength
1: okay so I'm just trying to visualize ex- exactly how you s- you get an exoplanet out of that
0: okay these are observations of real stars with planets going around the stars and so so what I mean by what I mean by color if you imagine an exoplanet orbiting around a star, but the star is mm-hmm. also wobbling slightly as the planet is orbiting, so this wobble basically, as things move away from you, they get they get red shifted. As things move towards you, they get blue shifted. And this these little features that I was just talking about, these get red and blue shifted, and this this tells you the period, the oscillatory period of planet.
1: Right. Okay. <laughs> and what,
0: what's
1: what's the second one?
0: So the second one is something called transit photometry. So there is a telescope called Kepler and and it is discovered to date 2,954 exoplanets. It's crazy. You you know, you, you basically, you stare at a bunch of stars for a really long time and you get a rate of, photons per second. Photons are just particles of light. So say you get, you know, 10 to the 45 photons per second. So it's a a lot Mm. of photons. If a planet passes in front of the star, you're blocking out some of this light. So you get less photons. If this is periodic, say it happens every, you know, every couple of days, then it's a good chance it's a planet.
1: So could it be an asteroid in orbit like could it be anything in orbit could it be like a giant ufo and you just think that maybe it's a planet
0: i think that's so that's that's interesting there, there was a uh, some research a, a couple of years ago where there was this really weird signal and actually what we think it is is kind of either like a very disrupted planet or like a bunch of asteroids
1: random question and i know that sure. if you can detect some of these things on exoplanets is there anything on the moon that we could mine or on any of the other planets that we could use for our own planet?
0: That's, I mean, that's, that's a good question. So the, the thing with the moon, as far as I know, is basically just a big ball of rock that is not that interesting. So it doesn't okay. really have... Anything up there? But the thing is, we don't know, right? Like we've never we've never mined down to its surface to see if actually it's got you know like a bunch of minerals that we didn't know. But also, I, I think it's kind of I don't know. I, I'm wary of saying anything positive about going off to go and mine things to destroy them to bring them back. You know what I mean? I think this yeah. is uh, kind of the kind core of, of our species, right? Like we feel entitled to go and destroy what we want because we need it right now.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, it's bad. But I, I do imagine if, if it's discovered, I, I pretty much know what humans will do if they can. I just.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My, mine it, destroy it, sell it for profit.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, that's why I'm sort of curious about what these other planets might have. Because what I've seen with uh, technology is eventually if there's money in it, technology develops quite quickly and you know loads of money pours into it so that's why I'm thinking if there's something on Mars
0: there could, there could well be. I think, you know, something mm. that's interesting is that Jupiter, it, its atmosphere is pretty rich in hydrogen and helium. If you could oh. find a way to mine hydrogen and helium from Jupiter, if it turns out that we needed it for medicine over the next, let's assume that our civilization survives for another 100,000 years and we, we need it for medical technology, that could potentially be a possibility, although we certainly don't have the capability of doing that today or, or even in near generations future, I don't think.
1: Yeah, there is some some concern as well, because we don't know what's on Jupiter. And yet, if there's something on there that we want, and we find out, God help Jupiterians. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so what's another method for detecting exoplanets?
0: Sure. So the next method that I'd like to talk about is something called direct observation. And that's just where you literally pretty much just, just stare at a star and you can almost take pictures of the planets. Oh, But the, the problem with this is that planets are extremely faint compared to their host star. So this tends to work best for very large planets that are very far away from the star. So for example, planets that are several times the mass of Jupiter and about 10 times further away than Jupiter is from our sun. So the best known system is, is a system called HR 8799. And you can Google it and you can see this very nice uh, GIF of planets orbiting their star and we only get loose constraints on planet mass this way basically if it's less massive it'll be cooler and therefore less bright but in, in some cases it is possible to give reasonable constraints to the radius of a planet based on its temperature its brightness and its and its distance from earth that we kind of are able to know
1: can i can i make a request
0: if yeah, you sure. do discover
1: one can you give it a name that's not full of numbers that I, that people can maybe remember that one that you just mentioned at 879 <laughs> like Come on, yeah, no, come on. I know. Why? Why? <laughs> why are they a the name?
0: I guess partly because there's so many of them. You know, we, we've detected like four thousand, over four thousand of them now, and then you start wanting to be able to catalogue them. So there's there's different kind of catalogues, and and that's why they all have these basically these phone number things, right? So I think mm. what we should do in in addition to having these phone numbers is also give them names that people can remember. Um, but I, but I'm also mm-hmm. wary, you know, I I said to, I said to some colleagues of mine at a conference, maybe we should let the public vote for the names, but I'm just a bit wary of people coming back with like planet, but planet face, you know, as space as, <laughs> as we've done <laughs> when uh, people tried to name the vote in the UK, right? We can't be trusted. This is why we can't <gasps> be <in our> space. <laughs> That's
1: so true oh my god that's so true and embarrassing humans are so embarrassing yeah. but still you'd come up with a good name for sure if i ever discover one i promise i'll give it a good name okay thank god i'm gonna hold you to that and i'm gonna wait until you and i'll i'll email you as well like, you yeah you um, promise? all right so sorry i cut you off again so
0: we've just talked about the third one so the fourth one is called gravitational microlensing, and this is a really cool technique it's discovered 101 planets to date what's really exciting about it is it's got the largest distance range for detecting so we can detect things that are thousands of light years away other techniques you're kind of limited to hundreds of light years so basically what my gravitational microlensing is this this happens because of einstein's theory of general relativity it's basically that massive objects bend space-time so if you think about the best analogy that i can give it uh, kind of you know is is in a 2d plane rather than a four-dimensional one but if you think about a bowling ball on a mattress And if you try to roll a marble in a straight line, you know, near to the bowling ball, you won't be able to do it. It'll just spiral Mm. in. And that's kind of the effect that massive objects have in four dimensional space time. So in in this case, you have a source star and and a lens star and the, the lens star moves directly in front of the source star and light that would otherwise pass by Earth from the source star far away is bent towards the Earth. So when galaxies do do this, this is called a normal lensing event, this produces an Einstein ring, and there are these really beautiful rings of light. However, when a lens star does it, it just brightens the source star because the mass is billions of times lower, so you can't really detect the rings of light. So now if the lens star also has a planet, this causes an extra blip on the blip. So like a little <laughs> blip, blip, so this extra yeah, bit yeah. of brightness... Let's detect a a planet, which is pretty cool because you can detect these things thousands of light years away. Uh, But the problem is, is that these these events are really rare. So they basically happen by accident when you're observing other things. So they require millions of measurements even to detect one. So they're a one-off. They're like a chance alignment of a bunch of stars in the night sky. So they're not repeatable at all.
1: Oh, God, that's painful because science is all about double checking, triple checking. And so you never really have that closure.
0: exactly exactly
1: terrible infuriating wait did you just do number five i'm losing track i did and there is
0: there is one one final one that i want to talk about because it's really exciting this one it's it's something called kinematic signatures and kinematic basically just means movements and this is a a really new technique kind of less than a year old although it was predicted to work about four years ago so what you do is you you observe the gas in a forming accretion disc So exoplanets form in accretion disks, which are these almost like, you know, if you think about a CD that they're kind of this sort of shape, they're a bit puffier than this, but they're this sort of shape. Mm -hmm. You look at the gas and all of the gas is, is moving at a given velocity. And if you if you take a bunch of gas that is moving at a very particular velocity, you might see this little funny, like a little dink shape. It's just a little a little kink at the location of the planet. And that's basically because the gas may be accreting onto the planet so it, it deviates from its normal rotation so normally the gas orbits in what's called keplerian rotation but because there's some local accretion going on to the planet this behavior is slightly modified and you can actually detect it so what we do is we couple this gas observation with what we call a continuum observation so dust emits at a given temperature. So there's, the system is full of gas and it's full of dust. We can look kind of at normal, what we call normal wavelengths of light at millimetres. And it's the dust emitting because it's warm. And then if you couple it with the gas observation in the dust, you'll often have this big sort of, ring where the planet has cleared out all the dust on its orbit it's basically eaten up all the dust to make itself and if you Mm. couple that with the gas observation then you can basically you can see as long as the kink in the gas coincides with the gap in the continuum then basically the the gas plus the dust combined together tells you wow we've spotted basically this invisible planet that is only you know like a few tens hundreds of thousands of years old it's really really young and it's just forming
1: and out of all of these, like which one would you be using most of the time? Is there any that you just you're a wizard?
0: Uh, so for for me, because I'm I'm basically a theorist, so a lot of the time I I generate what what I call synthetic observations or so direct observations. So I'm really interested, as I've just mentioned,
1: mm. at the
0: earliest formation stages of exoplanets. Right, like I want to understand how they form, and I want to understand why they form
1: and that is awesome to have a good understanding of how earth formed
0: it's crucial we, we need to understand how all planets form to understand where we come from
1: now i'm really glad i asked that question and no offense but i truly understand now why you're doing what you're doing because we mm-hmm. we know nothing about our planet i mean we there's all sorts of theories um from i'm not even going to get into the religious ones but anyway <laughs> I just, I, this is why we need science, you see, yes, so that we can absolutely. get to the bottom of these things. Okay, so I'm going to ask you the last question. Uh, if you can travel forward in time, just imagine, what do you think will be different to, to what we live in now?
0: That's that's a really good question. Um, so I think this is a thing, isn't it? Because all all scientific advances begin with imagination. So if you can kind of imagine it at some point, then I guess it could be possible. But I think, you know, you don't you don't know what you don't know is, is kind of the famous saying. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I guess if you could imagine it at all, then maybe as long as it doesn't violate the laws of physics, it's possible. I guess something that would be particularly interesting for me is this, uh, is this concept of something called a, a Dyson sphere, which is basically you, you kind of put a, almost like a, a sail or, or like a sheet in space around around the sun. And it uses solar energy to generate power. Whoa! whoa, whoa. I,
1: I think... What? Wait a second. <laughs> um... <laughs> Okay, so the sun is really big.
0: <laughs> yes, the sun is really big. Yes. So, yes.
1: Um, did you say a sheet or around the sun? Just to be clear, this does not
0: exist, right? Like, no. it's, it's kind of a concept. It's an idea, but the mm. you know any kind of progress in science, first thing you have to do is kind of imagine it. If you want to engineer it and try and build it, <laughs> yes, but it's, yep. it's it's kind of this huge structure that would either completely or partially encompass a star. I would capture a large amount of its kind of power, and it's it's often used in you know if you think about if there are aliens in the universe, for example, how would they be able to get to us? Where would they get all the power from? You know, and this sort of thing, and it's, it would be a way for you know a bit like us. Our energy consumption is out is uh, exceeding our production, right? So this is problematic mm-hmm. for fossil fuels and, and this sort of thing. So okay, we have fossil fuels now, but what happens when when that runs out? And then we have you know yes, we have wind and we have solar. But we have a finite amount of wind on the planet, and we have, you know, the sun emits a finite number of photons. What happens if our, say, if our solar panels, even if they operate hundred percent efficiency, which is not possible, we, we would still perhaps have a power demand that is greater mm-hmm. than than what could be met. And this this Dyson sphere is this this idea that we can we can harness the energy of the sun in some way to to make ourselves a uh, more energy efficient spacefaring civilization.
1: I'm going to look that up. Uh, that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. It's super
0: interesting, yes, yeah,
1: yeah. Now, obviously, I'm stuck with this image of a big sheet uh, in front of the sun, so I'm going to have to Google it. It sounds awesome because I, I have a funny feeling now the way that we're approaching energy isn't quite right Uh, Mm -hmm. we're sort of stabbing in the dark it feels like trying trying to reach an optimal energy source um okay well Cass thank you so much for joining me today it's been awesome thank you thank you very much for having me I've really enjoyed it Thank you so much for listening to the episode today with Dr. Cassandra Hall. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learnt just a little bit about exoplanets. Please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting application you're using. And until next time, keep reading and keep learning.